So we resume now uh, what we broke from briefly last time, though we were in the same chapter, looking at verses 4 and 5. Returning now to the sequence of thought that one finds in uh, verses uh, 14 through 17. I'll read verses 14 through 17, and I will preach verses 16 and 17 only. Hear then God's word. How then shall they call on him in whom they have not believed, and how shall they believe in him of whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher, and how shall they preach unless they are sent, as it is written? How beautiful are the feet of those who preach the gospel of peace, who bring glad tidings of good things. But they've not all obeyed the gospel, for Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed our report? So then faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. And let us pray together. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for your word as ever. We thank you for the way in which your word reflects upon itself. Here is the word of God, which is read, which is preached so that we might hear and so that we might believe. Oh, Father, we ask you that as a result of this, indeed, uh, this very sermon, that the truths which you set before us in this text might become apparent to us. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I always say this about Paul, but it's especially true in chapter 10. There is a, a clear a logic. There is a sequence of thought. One passage leads to the next, to the next, to the next, uh, and so on. Uh, and, and while it seems that verses 14 through 17 really contain one thought, uh, they in fact contain two. Uh, and, and that's why we divide them into two passages and two sermons. Uh, so there is a sequence of thought in verses 11 through 17 that we are considering, we have been considering together, and that we are concluding today. The sequence is as follows. Whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. That's verses 11 through, uh, through 13. And uh, prior to that, Paul spoke of the word of faith that we preach. And that word of faith that they preached and that I preach is that whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Or whoever, uh, he says in verse 11, whoever believes on him will not be put to shame. That's the gospel. That's the good news of the gospel. But that raises this question, which he deals with in verses 14 and 15. How will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how shall they believe in him of whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? That is, unless someone tells them, unless they hear the message of salvation that whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved, how will they call? And that's the question that Paul both asks and answers in verses 14 and 15. Verses 14 and 15 are the great argument or the great apologetic, you might say, for preaching, the preaching of the gospel as the means that God uses to publish the good news of the gospel far and wide so that men might indeed call upon the name of the Lord and be saved. And surely those who do so, Paul says, quoting the prophet Isaiah, surely those who do so uh, are, are, well, he says, they fit this description. How beautiful are the feet of those who preach the gospel of peace, who bring glad tidings of good things. How beautiful it is to have the gospel preached to us. That's what he's saying. And how thankful we are to God for sending preachers to us in order that we might hear always 
and believe the good things of the gospel. But even then, uh, not every question is answered. We have not finished the sequence of thought. For there is another problem to be solved, not how will they hear, that problem was solved in the prior two verses, but not all have obeyed the gospel. Notice the adversative, verse 16. So uh, people are beautifully preaching the gospel, but here's this alarming contrast. Verse 15, preaching the gospel beautifully. Verse 16, but they've not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed our report? So not how will they hear, but why upon hearing do they not believe? That's the last problem or the last question to answer. Paul, again, quoting Isaiah, is especially speaking of the Jews. Isaiah was speaking of those who heard him in his day. Paul is saying, really, it's the same thing in his day. The trouble with the Jew is not that they did not hear. They were, we will see this unfolded at the end of chapter 10, by the way, so in the, in the following sermon. But Jesus preached the gospel to them. Paul was preaching the gospel to them. Peter was preaching the gospel to them. There, there has never been a, a class of people, then the first century Jews, uh, ne- never been a class of people who, who heard the gospel more than the first century Jews. That's what I meant to say. No one ever had their ears so full of these things by the Lord Jesus and the apostles. They heard the gospel. The Jewish problem was not a lack of hearing. And you could not explain their unbelief on account of that. Again, Paul will stress this very clearly as he closes out the chapter in verses 18 through 21. The good news, you might say, had been preached beautifully to them. And God sent to them the most beautiful messengers there ever was. Again, the Lord Jesus Christ himself, the Apostle Paul, the Apostle Peter. You would have thought that they all would have believed. If ever, upon hearing the gospel, anyone would have responded in faith, it would have been the Jew, surely. On account of the Jewish expectation... On two accounts, first on account of the Jewish expectation, they were looking for it. And here the good news had come, the new covenant had come, and they rejected it. Amazing. But also on account simply of how good the news is. And so broadening out the principle, not just looking at the Jew, but looking at mankind in general, we ask the question, how is it that any hear this message and do not believe? Have you ever thought of that? I'm sure you have. God tells sinners that they may be pardoned full and free if only they believe. They may stand at the final judgment without any fear of condemnation for all the sins that they have committed, all the sins that they will commit. God will pardon them freely. He will justify them. There has never been better news than that. There cannot be better news than that. And you would have thought that man would, would hear that and he would believe it. Let me go further. God doesn't just give us this wonderful gospel, but he takes the initiative. He sends messengers to us. He says to Israel, all day long I've stretched out my hands to you. How did he do so? Through the prophets. It's God who goes after us. And yet what does he find? He finds a disobedient and a contrary people. 
you would have thought that many would believe, and yet here is the many thing, or excuse me, here, here is the amazing thing. Not all have believed. Again, you see Isaiah saying that in his own day. And it's fascinating to notice that he says this in chapter 53, verse 1. You know what chapter 53 is. It's the chapter of the suffering servant. And that's how he begins the chapter. Lord, who has believed our report? Well, this is the thing to believe. Salvation in a suffering servant. Salvation in a crucified Messiah. This is what Isaiah preached. This is what Jesus preached. This is what the apostles preached. Jesus died so that you don't have to. God laid our sins on him. And by his death, he would justify the many. And yet so vast was the unbelief that each encountered Isaiah, Jesus, the Apostle Paul, that it was as though, listen, this is the full, the, the true force of the passage. It was as though none had believed. You would have thought many or most would have believed, but the reality was the opposite. It was as though no one believed so that he was able to ask the question and Paul after him. That I'm speaking of Isaiah. Lord, who has believed our report? Has anyone believed it? That's the amazing thing that we have to account for. How is it that we account for this? The presence in Isaiah's day, in Jesus' day, in Paul's day, in our day, of such alarming unbelief. The, the, the fact that rather than near universal acceptance, which is what you would expect, given how good and gracious God is to sinners, what you have instead is near universal rejection. And that isn't just true of the Jew, though it is true of the Jew. But it's true of mankind in general. Do you see this as a real problem? This is something that ought to really baffle us. It's the kind of thing you ought to just stop at, at times and think about. How is that the case? Why is that the case? Something that should amaze us. Because you know, and it's something that I know, and I think many of you know as well, that when I became a Christian... Believing was the most easy and the most natural thing in the world. I heard the good news and I was glad and I believed and I was saved. It was just as easy as that. And really, I, I, there haven't been many days in my life that I've doubted that I was saved and that I was a Christian. Believing really isn't a difficult thing for a Christian. I understand there are difficulties involved in, a, in believing, especially concerning the doctrine of assurance. I preached many sermons on that. But when it comes to the simple fact that facts of the gospel, Jesus Christ came into the world. He died for sinners. He died for you. That's something that the Christian finds especially easy to believe. He finds no difficulty in believing that. And yet, what we are left asking about others, especially those whom we love, and that really is the context here, Paul is reflecting upon his kinsmen, his family. Why is it that they do not find the same ease in believing? Why is it so often the lament of preachers that, that they are forced to say, as Isaiah said in his own day, Lord, who has believed our report? Has anyone listened? Oh, the, the, the gospel, Paul will say, and the prophets before him, the gospel is for all. It's to be preached to all, but not all believe. That is the complete sequence of thought found in verses 11 through 17. What is the reason for this? Martin Lloyd-Jones says there must be another factor and thus another sermon. Uh, I'm adding that to his quotations, uh, though 
you wouldn't believe how many sermons he preached on the, uh, these verses. Well, what's that factor? I would begin by making a distinction, one that has historically been made. Uh, and this ought to be a, a commonplace distinction among us all. And if it isn't, well, I hope it will be after today. We're talking about how the go- not just what the gospel is, but how it's to be preached, how it's to be offered. And I keep saying that the gospel is for everyone. It's good news for everyone. It is to be offered to everyone. And that's what Paul keeps uh, emphasizing. It's what he's been glorying in. We call this the general call. The general call, whereby the, go- the gospel is offered to all without distinction. Verses 14 and 15, also uh, verse 12, for there's no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord over all is rich to all who call upon him. Uh, to use the language of the confession, this is where sinners are outwardly called by the word, the word which is preached. And the way that call is made once more is like this. Whoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. That is to be offered indiscriminately to all. And that is exactly what we find the apostles doing in Acts. They would preach to any and all who would listen to them. And they always said the same thing, that whoever believes on the name of the Lord will be saved. The general call. But there is another uh, subsidiary category to the general outward call of the gospel. And that is what we call the effectual call. The effectual call. This is in many ways to me the forgotten chapter of our confession, and yet it is one of the most useful ones. Chapter 10 of the confession. I won't read from the confession, but I'll read from the shorter catechism. You know, our shorter catechism talks about justification. It talks about adoption. It talks about sanctification. I think those are commonplace in, in, uh, in the language And the discourse of Christians today. But what about effectual calling? And that's what comes before justification, adoption and sanctification. What is effectual calling? Effectual calling is the work of God's spirit, whereby convincing us of our sin and misery, enlightening our minds in the knowledge of Christ and renewing our wills, especially listen to this last line. He doth, that is the spirit, doth persuade and enable us to embrace Jesus Christ freely offered to us in the gospel. Now, notice the distinction that's being made here. The gospel is offered to all. This is the preaching. And it is an outward work. But the effectual call is only made to some. And that is the inward work of the spirit. You have the outward call of the preaching and you have the inward work of the spirit. Only those who are effectually called, are able to respond with faith to the gospel summons. Listen again. The Spirit is the one who persuades and enables us to embrace Jesus Christ freely offered to us in the gospel. Do you see how these two things go together? Jesus Christ is freely offered to us in the gospel. And yet some do not believe, others do. What's the difference? Well, the difference is this, that the Spirit has persuaded some And he has enabled some to embrace Christ as he was freely offered in the gospel. And so the call that goes out in the general call is ineffectual in one and it's effectual in another. Now, I have been at pains to describe this to my children, and I find that this is one of the most difficult concepts for a child to grasp. And so I will give you the simple illustration that I've been giving my children. I say uh, to my son, William, this is what it means If I say, William, come, and you don't come, the call was ineffectual. 
But if I say, William, come, and and you come, then the call was effectual. When God calls the sinner and he comes, that's the effectual call. And what lies behind that, we discover, is the secret hidden work of the Holy Spirit in the heart of the sinner, enabling and persuading him to come. Effectual calling. How do we account for this difference then? That the call is effectual in one and not in another. The Apostle Paul supplies the answer in verse 17. He says, so then faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. And taking together with uh, verse 16, it becomes clear once more that the essential thing is faith. For Isaiah says, verse 16, Lord, who has believed our report and having Said that, he says, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. Not only that, but verse 14, how shall they believe unless they hear? And yet not all obey, not all believe. And why is that? Because hearing is not enough. That is the essential truth for us to see this morning. Hearing is not enough. A man can hear the gospel and still not believe it. Of course, Paul is saying he must hear it in order to believe it. For how shall they believe in him of whom they have not heard? And faith comes by hearing. And so hearing is essential to faith. But hearing does not make faith automatic. A man can hear the gospel and yet still not have faith. Faith comes by hearing. But hearing is not enough. And what this tells us is that, that there's two kinds of hearing. There's a kind of hearing that's effectual unto salvation. There's a kind of hearing that isn't. And if your hearing is to lead to your salvation, it has to be of the second kind. It has to be the kind that is effectual. There is a hearing which produces faith and there's a hearing which doesn't. Our Lord speaks of this in the parable of the sower. Why do so many hear the gospel and yet do not believe? Here is the answer which he gives. It's it's the little section in between uh, the, the parable and the explanation of the parable. He says, and again, do you notice he quotes Isaiah? This is what he says. They asked, why do you speak to them in parables? He answered and said to them, because it has been given to you to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven. But to them, it has not been given. For whoever has to him more will be given and he who has but uh, uh, any uh, sorry, I lost my place. Whoever has to him more will be given and he will have abundance. But whoever does not have even what he has will be taken away from him. Therefore, I speak to them in parables because seeing they do not see and hearing they do not hear. Nor do they understand. And in them, the prophecy of Isaiah is fulfilled, which says, hearing they will, you will hear and shall not understand. And seeing you will see and not perceive for the hearts of this people have grown dull. Their ears are hard of hearing and their eyes have closed, lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears, lest they should understand with their hearts and turn that I should heal them. But blessed are your eyes for they see and your ears for They hear. 
You see, the difference Jesus tells us and Paul is telling us is not what you hear. Both hear the same thing. They both hear the same message. The same seed is planted. The difference is found in its reception, the kind of soil your heart is. One kind of soil bears fruit, the other does not. The difference is found in the reception. The difference is found in the hearing. Why does one kind of soil bear no fruit? Because Jesus says they have ears, but they do not hear. Whereas in the other case, hearing, they hear. There's two ways to hear uh, the preaching of the gospel. And so when Paul says what he does in verse 17, that hearing or faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God, he is speaking of the second kind of hearing. And in uh, verse 16, he's speaking of the first kind. Lord, who has believed our report? And yet verse 17 or verse 18, rather, he says, but I say, have they not heard? Yes, indeed, they have heard and yet they've not believed. So there's two kinds of hearing. That's what we have to see. That's what we have to consider. And that's what ultimately answers the question, why do so many hear it and yet not believe? And yet in the case of others, they hear it and believing is the most natural. It's the most easiest, uh, the most easy thing in the world. Begin with the first kind. Those who hear but do not obey. They do not believe. Have they not heard? Yes, they've heard. But they did not obey. I would call this the dull hearing of unbelief. The person who is bored by what he hears. The person who is unaffected by it. The gospel is the power of God to save, but not unto him. It comes to him, it fills his ears, and so God comes near unto the soul, stretching out his hand to save, verse 21. But the hand, the powerful hand of the Lord is met with obstinance and disobedience. You remember what Stephen said to the Jews, you always resist the Holy Spirit. He's speaking to the dull hearing of unbelief. And the dull hearing of unbelief is characterized by three things. The first thing that characterizes this is indifference. You see, the gospel, Paul says, and Isaiah says, is glad tidings of good things. It's the best news a man could ever hear. And yet it doesn't make him glad and he doesn't receive it as glad tidings of good things. It comes to him as the most joyful message that has ever been uttered. And yet he is utterly indifferent. It is to him but another tale to be believed by simpler folks. But his his heart is set on other things better, he supposes. Second, we really must go farther and say there's also an element of animosity, not only indifference, but animosity. What he hears, he hates. We'll see that this evening. It wasn't just the indifference of the Jews. It was the animosity of the Jews that Paul and Barnabas faced. Far from obeying the gospel, he rejects it. His heart is against it. And so thirdly, he disobeys. Not all have obeyed the gospel, Paul says. Verse 16, the gospel comes to him as a summons. It comes to all as a summons. God is commanding all men everywhere, Paul says, to repent, to believe the gospel. That's a summons, you realize. Repent and believe. Those are imperatives to be obeyed. 
But that summons is not met with glad acceptance and ready obedience. No, the lament of those who preach to this kind of person is, as Paul says, they've not all obeyed the gospel. Lord, who has believed our report? That's the first kind of hearing. That's the kind of hearing that doesn't lead to salvation. But there is a second kind of hearing, and that is the hearing of faith. And here I would note four ingredients of the hearing of faith. The first is we see that it is a hearing which produces faith. How did we come by such faith? It was by hearing. Let us be clear about this. Always faith comes by hearing. That is consistent with the whole logic of the passage before us. Belief is the result of hearing the gospel. But it is a hearing of a certain kind, because as we know that many do hear, and yet they do not believe. It's the kind of hearing in which, uh, well, as I read earlier from the Westminster Shorter Catechism, the kind in which the Spirit persuades and enables us to embrace Jesus Christ freely offered to us in the gospel. It's the secret, hidden, inward work of the Spirit in the soul of man. And so if we're to ask, how does this happen? How does hearing Produce faith in some and yet not others. Effectual calling is one answer. It isn't the only one. Listen to what we'll read tonight. Now, when the Gentiles heard this, that is in contrast, this is uh, Acts 13, verse 48, by the way. The Jews had rejected the message, but in contrast, when the Gentiles heard this, they were glad and glorified the word of the Lord And as many as had been appointed to eternal life believe. That's the key phrase. As many as had been appointed to eternal life believed. You see, the preaching aroused animosity from the Jews, the dull hearing of unbelief. But the Gentiles, on the other hand, heard it and were glad. How do we explain the difference? Only in this way. As many as had been appointed to eternal life believed. In other words, By appealing, as Paul does in Romans chapter 9, to God's sovereign choice. By appealing to election. Another way that we could put this is in terms of Paul's language of the golden chain in Romans chapter 8, verse 29. Those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. And those whom he predestined, he also called. That is, he effectually called. He isn't speaking of the general call. He's speaking of the effectual call. How is it that this works out? Those whom God foreknew and thus predestined when the gospel comes unto them as a summons to believe and obey and repent. They hear it gladly. They yield. They accept it. And so they're saved. Those whom he predestined, he effectually called. And so the first characteristic is that this kind of hearing produces faith in the hearer when God effectual, effectually calls him, even as he intended to do from all eternity. They hear and so they believe and are saved. Why was it easy, in other words, for me to believe? Why was it easy for you to believe when the gospel came to you as glad tidings of good things? It wasn't because you were such a good person and you were so open to it. It was because those whom he foreknew, he also predestined. And those whom he predestined, he also called effectually. This is, by the way, the great argument for preaching, as we've seen, for how will they hear without a preacher. But it also tells us what happens every time a believer hears the preaching. 
Every time you hear the preaching, this is true. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. Did you ever think of it like that? In other words, here's what I'm telling you. Every time you hear the preaching, every time, it's yet another opportunity for faith. If faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God, then that person, that person is you, by the way, if he wants more faith, ought to seek to hear as much as he possibly can. He should find a church that preaches the gospel and let his ears be full of, uh, of that gospel always. Why? Because he wants faith. He wants more faith. And so let him hear as much as he can. You see how that works. This isn't just an argument, as I'll claim uh, at the end of the sermon. It's not just an argument for those who are newly converted. It's an argument for Christians always, for those who want faith, for those who want more faith. Understand how it is that faith comes. It comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. But the second uh, ingredient, if the first is that uh, this kind of hearing produces faith, the second is that it hears the word which is preached as the word of God, as the word of God unto him. Now, such a thought was implicit in verse uh, 14. How shall they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how shall they believe in him of whom they have not heard? A slightly better translation, I'm agreeing with John Murray when he says, take the word of out in the second sentence of verse 14, and it would yield this instead. Uh, how, how shall they believe him whom, not of whom? They're not hearing about him, they're hearing him. How shall they believe him whom they have not heard? For if they are to call upon him, they must hear him. That's the true burden, the true thought of verse 14. As John Murray says, a striking feature of this clause is that Christ is represented as being heard in the gospel when it is proclaimed by the sent messengers. The implication is that Christ speaks in the gospel proclamation. Unless you think that's put a bit too strongly, listen to Paul in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 13. For this reason, we also thank God without ceasing, because when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you welcomed it, not as the word of man, but as it is in truth, the word of God, which also effectively works in you who believe. Do you see what a fitting summary that is of everything that I've said so far? It was effectively or effectually working faith in you. Why? Because it wasn't the word of man. You see, it was unto you the very word of God. God was speaking to you, to you through us, Paul is saying. And it is for this reason that hearing works faith in the heart. It isn't because, well, the man is so persuasive. And he so persuasively set forth uh, the very words of God for your ears to hear. It isn't that. No, it's something altogether better. It is by this means that God is speaking unto you, that Christ is speaking, and we who are his sheep hear and know his voice, and he leads us. John chapter 10. We hear his voice in the preaching, even as we hear it in the scriptures. He is speaking, we are hearing, and it is this transaction that produces faith, the effectual word of God unto you. Not the persuasive words of man. Let me come to the next ingredient, and it is that of obedience. Another ingredient of the hearing of faith is obedience. 
Well, let us not go so far as I was saying earlier. We are sometimes tempted to say, Lord, who has believed? Has any believed? Has anyone obeyed? That's the lament of the preacher. That's the lament of the prophet. But implicit in those words, and it's clear from how Paul concludes in verse 17, uh, that the thought is really not all have believed. Yes, but some have. Thank God, some have. So many heard and they disobeyed and they disbelieved, but there are some who have. And so let me stress again that the gospel comes to man as a summons, as an invitation, yes, but also as a call to obedience. It calls men unto God in repentance and in faith. Repent and believe the gospel. Or even in the language, whoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved is yet again a summons to be obeyed. The summons is this, call upon the name of the Lord and you will be saved. And if men do not obey the summons, they will not be saved. Now, I do, I do not mean to say this as though to undo everything I've said this far in Romans. Salvation is by works. I do not mean to say that. But I am here speaking of what the apostles spoke of uh, earlier and will speak of again in Romans, namely the obedience of faith. That is, that faith itself is obedience to the gospel. Let me say that again because it's so important. I'm not contending for works. I'm saying that faith is the obedience that we offer to the gospel summons. It tells us to believe and so we believe and so we are saved. And that's exactly what Isaiah is saying. That's exactly what Paul is saying when he says, not all have obeyed. The word went forth and yet they disobeyed. They rejected it. In unbelief. Faith is the obedience we offer to the gospel summons. When we hear the gospel summons to believe, we obey it. You see, in a sense, he's really saying the same thing using different words in verse 16. Not all obeyed. Who has believed? He's not saying something different. He's saying the same thing. Because faith is obedience to the gospel. The one thing it demands of us is that we believe it. And if we do not believe it, then it cannot save us. But there's one further ingredient, and that is the ingredient of gladness. Gladness. Remember what he said uh, just before in verse 15. How beautiful are the, are the feet of those who preach the gospel of peace, who bring glad tidings of good things. And then here's the contrast immediately. But not all have obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed our report? The trouble with the unbeliever is that he doesn't view the gospel as glad tidings of good things. That's why he doesn't believe it. But when a man hears in such a way as to believe, that's how he receives the gospel. He receives the gospel gladly, happily. He hears it in this way as glad tidings of good things. He thanks God for the gospel. He thanks God for the preaching. He even thanks God for the preacher. He thanks God for the feet that brought the gospel to him. Yes, it is to him good news. And so it is to him the power of God to save. Well, I take these last two ingredients, that of gladness and of obedience, and say that together they constitute the most essential test for, our, uh, for ourselves and our hearing. Let me ask you this. When the gospel came unto you, did you... Obey it. 
Listen to what Paul says in Romans chapter 6 verse 17. But God be thanked that though you were slaves of sin, yet you obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine to which you were delivered. Formerly you were obeying sin, but now the word has been delivered unto you and you are obeying. Thank God for that. Not only that, but was it good news unto you? In other words, what did we find in our hearts when the gospel was preached to us? It was preached unto us as glad tidings of good things, but did it produce gladness in the heart? That's the question. Again, it didn't in the case of the Jews. It doesn't in the case of those who reject the gospel. But those whose, whose hearing produces faith and thus salvation, it always produces this element of gladness. Gladness in the sense that we are gladly willing to yield ourselves to it. Listen to William Guthrie when he describes the transaction of the soul and Christ that we call salvation. Or we could call the effectual call. He says this. This is a man speaking in the first person. I am pleased with the device of salvation by Christ. I agree to the terms. I welcome the offer of Christ in all his offices as a king to rule over me. As a priest to sacrifice and intercede for me, as a prophet to teach me, I lay out my heart for him and towards him, resting on him as I'm able. You see, here is a man who is glad, but also a man who is yielding. Or as Guthrie says in another place, the kingdom of God is like a man finding a treasure for which with joy he selleth all. Matthew thirteen forty four. These words hold out the very way of believing, namely salvation is discovered in the gospel to be by Christ. The heart values that method as satisfying. There is an element of, well, the only way to describe it, this element of gladness is like a man who found a treasure and he's so happy that he did. Well, let me close like this. And let me ask you, as I said I would earlier in the sermon, whether such things can still be found in our hearts. You see, it's one thing to imagine that the apostle is speaking only to the newly converted. It's easy to read Romans chapter 14 or or, uh, chapter 10, verses 14 and following in that way. He's talking about what happens when a man has the gospel preached to him. He believes and he's saved. He's talking about new converts. But did we ever think of the gospel like this as something that is always joyful to us? It is always glad tidings of good things. And it is something that is always calling us to obedience, namely the obedience of faith. And as Guthrie says, to value the method set forth as satisfying to the soul. For if faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God, do we think that that is true only of the first sermon we ever heard? The first sermon that inspired us to believe Or do we find in what is preached to us something which is pleasing and satisfying to the soul? And in this way that our faith is growing all the time by the good things we hear in the preaching. Here then is the test. Do we delight in what we hear in such a way that faith comes by hearing? Do we find that faith is the result of what we hear? Do we find that faith is being nurtured in the soul and it is caused to flourish by the things that we hear in the preaching? Is it in us 
Or do we find in us a continual sense of delight? Or is it a burden and a drudgery unto us? Is it ever true of us, I wonder, that we find the sad mixture that Paul speaks of here? That the gospel is beautifully preached unto us. And yet not all have obeyed the gospel. But that leads me to a second point in closing, and this is an implication that while the preaching itself may be to blame for so much that is wrong in the church today, and I do not deny it, so much of the preaching that one finds in the church falls short of what Paul is describing here. It is not the only deficiency or the only explanation, rather, for the deficiencies that one finds in the church, for there is also the other side that we must always remember, and it's that of hearing. Not just that of preaching, but that of hearing. And it is perfectly possible, the apostle is saying here, and indeed likely in many cases, that the true preaching may go unheeded. The gospel may be preached beautifully and yet not all obeyed. Who has believed our report? That is precisely what Paul is talking about here and will continue to reflect upon in verses 18 through 21. It is also what our Lord was reflecting on in the parable of the sower. The parable of the sower, well, even though I'm going to preach it at Presbytery as a sermon for sowers in a few weeks, uh, as I have the, uh, the, the, the joy of preaching the opening devotion, it really is a sermon for hearers. It's a sermon for hearers. How are you receiving the word? How are you hearing it? It's in this way that we find uh, scripture so often, well, is asking the question, how are you hearing? Or it's commanding us, take care how you hear. I I, I think of what uh, the Apostle Paul said in his first sermon. He begins, men of Israel, listen, listen. I think of what he says in Galatians chapter 3, verse 2. This only I want to learn from you. Did you receive the spirit by the works of the law Or by the hearing of faith. The hearing of faith is what is really essential. Not just to conversion but to the Christian life. And we can't begin with the hearing of faith and finish by the works of the law. No, we've got to go on with the hearing of faith. There are several calls I'm saying. I have a list here. I'm not going to read them all. But several calls in scripture to hearing. And I think Romans chapter 10, verse 17 belongs in this class. Uh, But I think the most searching of them all is found in Hebrews chapter 3, verse 7 and 8, quoting Psalm 95. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion in the day of trial in the wilderness. For the hearer, we find in this passage and many others must take care To his own hearing. Israel heard the gospel. But they hardened their hearts in unbelief. How are we hearing what is being said. From the pulpit. If faith comes by hearing. Yet not all have believed. Verse. uh, I'm inverting verses uh, 17 and 16. The really essential question is. That we all need to be asking. Every time we come. Every time. Is how am I hearing what is being said. From the pulpit. You see, we're so ready to examine what is being said or how it's being said. I don't deny there's value in that. But we also need to be asking the question how am I hearing what is being said? What is the state of my own heart? Am I hearing with the dull hearing of unbelief or am I hearing and receiving gladly the things that are being said?
Well, enough for now on that subject. We will continue to consider it in the coming sermon, beginning in verse 18. But for now, let us come to the table.